Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Adam, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so thankful uh, for the chance, as me, you know, I've been on vacation for the past few weeks and a chance to spend some time with my family and kind of rest and spend some extra time in the Word and prayer and, uh, and such. But I'm also thankful... Um, for Pastor Jeff's faithful preaching of the Word the past few weeks. I, I don't want you to miss this. The context, it's, it's easy to forget the context of First Peter. That right in the midst of these people's suffering, their uncertain circumstances, their difficult lives, even death-facing lives, that this is what he says... In summary, that new life in Christ, as Pastor Jeff said, gives rise to new passions for Christ, and new passions for Christ give rise to new conduct for Christ, and this new conduct and these new passions bring God great glory. This, this, that's what he says to people who are suffering, people who are in challenging life circumstances, in situations that, that they would rather not be in. This is what he says to them. I want to remind you of, of chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter says to them and says to us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And he says this phrase, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's part of the point that I want to drive home right here at the beginning in this passage. Is that the reality of this verse, chapter 9, and the reality of the callings in verse 1 through 6 are transcendent. Meaning, they sit over and above us no matter our circumstances. All right, well, it was blowing, the wind was blowing her hair around. It's blowing my microphone now. Which one is it? Is it this one? There we go. We'll see. If it blows, does someone say, hey, you're distracting me? Um, where was I at? The reality is this stands over and above our circumstances. New life, new passions, new conduct, God's glory stand over and above. It's still blowing, isn't it? Is this one. Jeff was like, dude, you need some fans. I was like, all right, I'm getting two. That's, that's worse, isn't it? I'll blow it at my feet. At least my feet will be cold. How about that? Let's do this. It's just going to blow my Bible around. It's all right. We don't need it anyways. If you're a visitor, you know how absolutely uh, joking I was. I, I'm sorry, you, you don't know how absolutely joking I was. If you are a member here, you do know. I have my notes, my Bible scripture in my iPad. So if you see my Bible closed, it's in my iPad. There we go. I'm going to start all over. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, where was I? New life leads to new, new life in Christ, leads to new passions for Christ, leads to new conduct for Christ, ultimately God's glory. 
What a beautiful, beautiful, and incredible picture that those who were once dead and slaves to sin are now alive to Christ and his righteousness. That's this picture that this phrase kind of captures. This week is all the same. Nothing's changed. Next week is all the same. Nothing's changed. The following week will be the same. New life in Christ for this week leads to new passions in marriage, which leads to new conduct in marriage, which brings God glory. Again, no matter the past, present, or future circumstances. Now listen, I know there's a lot of tension around this passage. It's part of the uh, beauty and also the challenges of, of preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. Is we, don't, we don't get to just choose the verses we want to skip over and the ones we want to spend three months on and and write whole series about. We, we work through them and we deal with them as they come and trust the Lord's goodness in it. But I know there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of hurts, a lot of fears. Listen, people have been abusing this passage along with many other passages for its entire existence, I'm sure. Certainly in, in our experience. I think there's two extremes of abuse when it comes to this passage. On one side, people abusing it to protect men's mistreatment, even abuse of their wives, along with other evils. At the other end of the extreme is people abusing this passage in order to promote things like feminism. What I mean by that is twisting the passage to say things that it doesn't say in order to promote views as such. In both extremes. They just abuse the text in different ways. Both abusing it to say something that it does not say. But I want to encourage us. I want to encourage all of us this morning that that God intends to reveal through this passage many things, but certainly at the pinnacle, a beautiful picture of himself and his glory, particularly in this case as it relates to how he relates to Jesus but also to reveal to us the path to the good life for his people. The path to the good life for his people. So let's do this. I, I, I want to ask the Lord to help us set aside the tension, potential misunderstandings that we have. I really pray this with every passage, ultimately. Things like our hurts, our preconceived notions, any biases that we have in any direction, and let's ask God to give us fresh eyes to see and behold His glory through this passage. Let's pray. Father, I I, I pray that for the good of Your people, and ultimately for Your glory, that You would meet each soul right where it's at, whether it is filled with anger, or filled with hurt, or it's filled with pride or superiority or inferiority or whatever the case it is, Father, that you would meet by your Spirit those hearts right where they're at and apply the text and a pastoral sermon to their lives. Father, do the same thing for me. Father, I have biases and I have preconceived notions and I have misunderstandings when it comes to passages and poor examples and so on and so forth. Father, I pray that you would do this for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. I'm telling you, these fans are going to be at my feet by the time we're done. Oh, you think it's that one? Ah, there's, let's hope that's the culprit. I know you all are fine. I'm just going to be distracted the whole time. That's what's going to happen. Peter started with what our passions and conduct should look like 
as it relates, like in this recent section, as it relates to governing authorities and, and then moves on to this uh, employment, really, situation as, as uh, Jeff has been working through the past three weeks with you. And now he moves to the family. This week, being a wife God's way, next week being a husband God's way. So if ladies this week, you're like... Uh, hey, what about the men? It's next week, okay? Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that passage as well. But let me also talk to you who are, who are not wives at the moment. There's a lot of us in here who are not wives. Whether you're a husband, a single dude, or a single lady, a widow, or such. For those who are not wives at this moment, this passage is still for you because it's meant to help you and I behold the glory of God. It's still for us. The picture being painted by the husband and wife here, particularly the wife in this context, is, an all, is, is ultimately a display of God's glory representing Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. But also, practically speaking, to those who are not wives at this moment, those around you who are need your help and support. They need your encouragement and your care. They need to be pushed. They need their hands held sometimes by, by people in different life stages than that they're, than, and situations than they're in. It's tough. I've heard from many of our singles often that just, that many times they feel inferior because they're not married or they haven't arrived or you feel attacked for being single, which, which that stuff's just garbage. At the same time, those of us trying to live faithfully to this passage as a husband and wife are made to feel inferior by our culture. Like we're not enlightened enough. Or that these men are chauvinistic and oppressive. Or that the women who submit to their husbands are just dumb doormats or don't know any better or have been manipulated. We need each other's help when it comes to this passage. I still hear that wind is still killing me. There we go. I'm just going to get real hot. Now, I think there's lots of confusion when it comes to this passage. The first one, I think, is this. And and I chose this phrase very specifically and very guardedly. I think one of the parts that leads us to confusion in this passage is what I'm going to call a pagan perspective. Again, I chose the term pagan. Anything that is not according to God's word is pagan and that is this idea, I'll summarize, these are my words, that we must rid ourselves of anything that would distinguish men from women. And in that, we find true equality. Why? Because only when there's no distinction can we truly be equal. There can be no distinction in giftings, no distinction in strengths, no distinction in physical abilities, no distinction in authority. However, I think we find in the scriptures, this passage and beyond, that there are distinctions between men and women, both in those categories that make men and women very different, unique, and should be embraced. Like the idea of being different in the body of Christ as well, similarly, is painting the same picture. Unity, not uniformity. And I don't think any of us realize just how influenced we are by this paganism. For example, as an example of, of this in my own life, I oftentimes shy away from leading as I should, even in my marriage, for fear of being called chauvinistic or some patriarchal woman oppressing bigot. Remember, And I'm saying this for you as much as I am for me. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Our values come from the king of kings, not pagan religions. 
They come from God. We are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. So they one, that causes a lot of confusion. But two, being more of a, if you've tried to think through this more theologically, I think the other thing that causes some confusion when it comes to this passage is the idea that mutual submission and authority slash submission relationship between spouses, that those two things are enemies. That they're in conflict with one another. Instead, mutual submission to each other as well as the responsibilities given to each, the man and the woman, are not enemies but friends. And when they work together, it's a beautiful thing. And we don't use mutual submission to explain the relationship between a husband and wife in its totality, but that's oftentimes what we do. Well, what he really means there is they just mutually submit. It's not what he means. There's a couple passages kind of used to support this mutual submission only. Ephesians 5.21, you can write these down and read them later. But he says, just submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But if you watch the next verse, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And he does not say the same thing for the husband. Then in Galatians 3.28, he says, Paul says this. Again, both of these are Paul. I, I know we're reading in Peter, but these verses are used to kind of squash what Peter is saying. And verse 28 of chapter 3, Galatians says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the conclusion that comes from reading that passage, mistakenly, is that there is no room for any distinction between man and woman. If that's true, then there is no room for distinction between cultures either. For there is neither Jew nor Greek. So we should all have the same culture as well. But you read the next verse in verse 29. Again, oftentimes if we just read on, it would help us. He says this, And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The passage isn't teaching that maleness and femaleness is obliterated in the gospel. These passages aren't teaching that every person submits to each other in every single way. Now certainly there are some ways that we are to mutually submit. Things like seeking each other's best, showing each other compassion, grace, mercy, putting the needs of others above ourselves. Those are the ways in which we mutually submit and beyond. But what these passages are saying is that both men and women who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are spiritually equal in God's kingdom. They stand before the throne of God equal. Not one over the other. We stand as co-heirs. Let me put it in some other words. Our dignity as men and women, our value is equal. You can stand, I can stand before God in dignity and essence are, is equal and still have differences, even differences in giftings and roles and tendencies. Our world likes to define who we are inside by what we do or by the roles that we function. That's why when you get together, what's the first thing you ask someone often? We, we know this, like, well, what do you do? What's your career? Why? Because our world defines who we are by what we do. We're defined by what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. Listen, mutual submission does not negate headship and submission. They work together in a beautiful picture. I would argue that if you don't think that that's possible, then you don't hold to an orthodox view of the Trinity. If you don't think that the idea of mutual submission and the idea of headship and submission can work together then you don't hold to an orthodox view of the Trinity. Let me give you the example. 1 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says this, But I want you to understand 
that the head of every man is Christ. The head of wife of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is who? God. Now does that strike you? What? The head of Christ is God? Look at that. Jesus is submissive to God the Father. Wow, Jesus, who said, I and the Father are one, uh, that, uh, that, that we're also the same, yet we're distinct. The Jesus who is equal to the Father is also submissive to the Father. So listen, if, if you think that submission makes you less than, hear me, ladies, then what do you think about Jesus? Is he less than the Father? No. And if he's not less than the father, then you're not less than your husband. Or men, if you think that the wife's calling to be submissive makes you more important than her, then what do you think about Jesus and the father? If it makes you feel superior to her, what's that make you, what's that say you mean or you believe about Jesus and the father? Now I can think of a couple extremes. One, I can't be submissive to my husband. I'm above that. I would simply and graciously ask you, are you above Jesus? Jesus considered it very acceptable to be below in authority his father. Or on the other extreme of this, I'm less than my husband because my role is submission. To you, I would encourage you with this. Is Jesus less than his father? He's not. And so neither are you less than your husband. How is this possible? Without belaboring this too much longer, Jesus is equal in essence or nature, but he is distinct in his role. Listen, this is the same for the church when it comes to the church and its elders. The congregation and the elders are equal in essence or nature. We stand before the throne as co-heirs. But we're distinct in roles. One is called to lead. The other is called to follow. Now look at how beautiful the Trinity is. There's mutual submission, certainly loving one another, seeking each other's good, and yet there's distinctions, especially within their roles. How marvelous. And that it's the outworking of this comes the cross. Do you understand that? The outworking of this role and relationship between the Son and the Father comes, among many things, the cross. So to summarize, you see husband and wives mutually submit and seeking each other's good while enjoying equality of essence and nature and value and worth and standing before God. And yet, they are given distinct roles. The father leads, Jesus follows. The husband leads, the wife follows. And what does this do? Among many things, it shows us a picture of the Trinity. Now, what I want to do is, hopefully, we can just set aside, and I know this is hard, what I'm asking you to do, just for us to set aside the hurtful uses of this passage, the, the abusing of this passage, for whatever reason, or the confusion that we have, and let's Get to see if we can figure out what does it say and how do I apply this here. The first thought here is wives submit to your own husbands. That's point number one. In verse, the first part of verse one says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. It uses the word likewise. So just like you're called to submit to governing officials, similarly, Not a one-for-one, but similarly, you are to do the following. You're to submit to your own husbands. You're to live this life that displays the gospel ultimately. I think Pastor Jeff did a great job of showing us how how we're called to do just the bare minimum. We're called to be an example of our glorious God. The same thing is true here. 
Now, first of all, let's talk about what does submission mean just in general. This is my operational definition here. It means joyfully seeking the will of the one in authority. Joyfully seeking the will of the one in authority. It doesn't just mean doing what I want until I'm asked to do otherwise. Submission's not passive. It's active. Just look at the life of Jesus and his submissive life with the Father. But listen, submission is a strength of pursuing the desires, the plans, the direction of the one in authority over. Like, do you understand how much power of the Spirit that it takes for any human in any situation to seek to submit their lives under another? Submission is joyfully and willfully placing yourself under another. You watch this with Jesus beautifully. Just to be clear, I, I believe submission here means that the one in authority gets the final say. Who had the final say when Jesus said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me? His father did. Now, I think idolatry of power is one of our biggest hindrances to seeing the beauty of this verse. We think in our culture that power is the end. It's the end-all, be-all. It's the ultimate achievement. But if that's the case, then Jesus must have gotten it wrong. Because he found it fitting to submit to his father. And then ultimately to submit to Pilate and the high priests, etc., Submission is beautiful. And I know when I say the phrase that someone gets the final say, like I know that that just rubs us wrong. Right? That does not preclude having conversations and discussing and seeking your wife. Man, I'm, gonna get to, I'm getting ahead of myself here. But this doesn't mean, men, you just make decisions without talking to your wife and seeking her. She should be like the Proverbs 31 one where you're seeking her for wisdom. She's lady wisdom herself. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm just going to do this and I don't care what you say. Okay, so I'm getting ahead of myself, getting ahead of the passage here. But it does mean that someone gets the final say. Now, Understand, though, as well, another caveat here would be that that's in submission to God in the Scriptures. We'll get to that in a moment. But submission is beautiful. Submission displays the gospel. Jesus submitted to the Father's plan to send him to die for us. And Jesus submitted to the incarnation and all the restraints that that would place upon him for the rest of his existence. Now, What else does he say about submission in this verse? He says it's to your own husband. This means, women, you are not in submission or under the authority of any other man. Now certainly, if you have men who are elders, you submit to them as elders If there happen to be men in governing authorities or in employment, then you submit to them then. But but this is not a call to submit to men. This is a great moment to insert the mutual submission idea. All men and all women should mutually submit to each other, looking out for each other's good, putting one another above them, not putting, uh, I'm sorry, yes, putting each other above themselves. But hear me. There is no general class of women who are submissive to a general class of men. That's not what this passage is teaching. It's saying your submission, ladies, wives, is to your own husband and your husband alone. The next thing we see here is that submission is a division of labor not a statement of inferiority or superiority. Practically speaking, marriage is the union where two become one flesh. Just, let's just get pragmatic for a moment. 
if no one has the position of leadership, the final say, then there's a great probability of power struggles, fighting, everyone trying to get the upper hand. Listen, in in our home, with Sarah and I, when we decide how we're going to handle, when we're trying to decide how we're going to handle dinner cleanup, and Sarah says, you wash and I'll put everything else away. Sometimes it's the other way. It's usually that way. It's usually the way it works for us. I don't know why. I'm usually chasing things around and she's scrubbing pans and that's kind of the way it goes. Listen, that has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. Does not make her better, does not make me better or her less or myself less. But has everything to do with the division of labor. Again, back to Jesus. Jesus was not superior or inferior to the Father. Jesus' labor was to be submissive and carry out the will of the Father. Again, that makes him neither superior or inferior. Submission is more of a division of labor than a statement. It's not a statement on inferiority and superiority. The last thing I want you to see with this verse is that this submission to your husband paints a beautiful picture of the gospel. Let me explain. I've already referenced this a few times. Wives, don't miss this. Wives, don't miss this. Those around you, myself included, don't miss this. But wives, you've been given a unique opportunity to display the gospel in a way that the rest of us cannot do. Certainly, we can display the gospel in other unique ways. We all have unique ways, but... This is the way that the wives show. As you submit to your husband, you model for the rest of us the beauty of Christ and his relationship with his bride where his church submits to him. One of the greatest pictures, the greatest picture in many ways that I get to watch of how I should relate to Jesus and submit to him as his bride is as I watch my wife toil, (laughs) flourish often in submitting to me. In this passage, he says this, even if some do not obey the word, even if some do not obey the word. So this passage is not just for wives submitting to husbands who do not believe. This is for wives with all their husbands. Because he says, for even if some do not believe. Even if some. All husbands, but especially those who don't believe. He says that they should be one to the gospel by your conduct. Now, I don't think he is, I don't think Paul, is, I'm sorry, Peter is prohibiting that the wife never says anything. We'll get to this in a moment. But what he's saying that your conduct is of great value and that it displays the gospel, winning your husbands to Jesus, whether they're redeemed or not. Paul says, Submit to the husband. Go read these passages later. Paul says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He adds that extra phrase which I think is helpful. You may struggle with the concept of submitting to your husband when you think it is strictly, think of it strictly as a marriage, but would you have a problem submitting to Jesus if he were your husband? I know. Boom, you went, well, he ain't Jesus, right? Right? I didn't get any laughs on that one. He ain't Jesus. I'm not Jesus either. But listen, we can submit to authority, whether husband, employer, or government, if we understand that by doing so, we are submitting to the Lord. As to the Lord. Do you see the beauty of this? Wives, the opportunity that you uniquely have That in the bonds of marriage, you get to show the rest of the church 
in a very unique way what it looks like to submit to Christ, the head of the church, as you submit to your husband. I don't get to show that, but my wife does. So wives, submit to your own husbands is what Peter says next. He shows us that submission is marked by respectful and pure conduct. Right, in the second part of verse 3, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of your wives. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Certainly, this is applicable to all of us. It's not the men don't have to have pure and respectful conduct. That's not the point. But he's saying, wives, your submission should be marked by this. So the first one, respectful conduct, what does he mean? He means a healthy apprehension of their displeasure. All right, now I'm going to define this because we're like, oh man, we're just supposed to please our husbands. A healthy apprehension of their displeasure. All those words chosen very specifically. All right. Listen, that you would walk each day, wives, desiring to please your husband, to bring to his life what is best for him. Now, listen, you should understand this. That doesn't always mean giving him what he wants, but it should always be what he needs. But even when you know it's something that he needs that might displease his flesh, you do so carefully. Carefully. It means like the the idea, well, I'm just going to do this no matter what. Like that should never be in there. It's the same thing for the husband next week. But it should never be like like a, well, who cares? I don't care what he says. I don't care how he feels. I don't care what's going on. Listen, our our actions, your actions, wives, are not ultimately determined by his fleshly displeasure, but his godly displeasure. What what, what I mean by that is, in the forefront of your mind should be, what is the word of God saying is best for my husband? Right? Right? And even whether he's going to like it or not, that, that I desire to please him, to care for him. The second he says is this a pure conduct. Here's what he means by pure conduct. Free, pure or free from moral defilement. You've heard Pastor Jeff say this phrase. I've heard him say this a thousand times as it relates to pastors. I'm always very helped by it. I'm going to change it just a little bit for application here. But wives, what your husband needs most from you is your personal holiness. To see your personal holiness. Now it's tricky because he may not think he needs this most, right? Or he may not recognize it. He needs to see the character of God on display in your life. He needs you searching the scriptures, praying fervently. He needs you living out your life in Christ. He needs you to do that more than your paycheck and more than a clean house. More than sex. He needs your personal holiness. He needs you to love God more than you love yourself, more than you love Him. This is pure conduct. So Peter is not saying here, do whatever makes him happy. Just like he's not saying, do whatever the government wants to make them happy. Live lives as a holy nation. It's the same thing here. Just just pulling that thread right on through. This also means, wives, let me encourage you for a moment. Because I see, I, I've seen this happen so often over the past couple decades of ministry where 
you'll pick up on what I'm saying. Wives, never follow your husband into sin. Ever. Now, I, I know you're going to and you're going to fail and you're going to have to go repent. I, I, I get that. Or you may not have a choice. Like he, he might be forcing things. Like, for example, the sin of abuse. I just, I, I want to say this. Like, you might feel trapped. And, and I, like, listen, come talk to somebody. Come talk. Don't be afraid. But the idea of abuse, you don't have to subject yourself to that. That's not pure conduct. Now, listen, there are wise ways, and every situation is different. So I don't mean just because you feel a certain way, just take off running. However, I will say if, some, if there is physical abuse, call the police. Just call the police. Tell your elders, but call the police. But you're not called to subject yourself to his abuse. That's not pure conduct. That's not what he needs most. Moving away from that category of stuff to a different situation where maybe it's a financial sin or maybe he's sinfully disgruntled with other people or harboring bitterness or so on and so forth. Like the list is long. Don't follow him into those moments. Now, I know it's tempting because it might make him happy. It might please him. But again, he doesn't need most his happiness. He needs your holiness. He needs you to submissively say sometimes, honey, you're in sin. I will not support, nor will I follow you down that path. Now again, you can say that with a healthy apprehension of their displeasure. You can say it. You know they're not going to be pleased with that phrase. But you say it out of love. And if you're saying it out of love, within love is a healthy apprehension of someone else's displeasure. Moving on. Submission is marked by the priority of inward beauty. It's respectful and pure conduct. Next, it's marked by the priority of inward beauty. Look at verse 3. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which, is God, which in God's sight is very precious. Well, what is he saying here? Is this a legalistic ban on certain clothing and hairstyles, Right? So we all got to wear certain things next week. Here's the list of what that looks like. Ready? Might get extra hot in here next week. Listen, to take this literal at this juncture is really bad interpretation skills. The principle is timeless. The illustration is transient. The principle is this. The woman's priority should be inward beauty. A spirit that is defined as quiet and gentle. Now Peter, here's what he's doing. He's telling women to not get caught up in a flashy display or an ostentatious display of beauty. Because the most beautiful thing about them is your soul. Now listen, he's not saying disregard the outer appearance. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying just let it go. It's something to be stewarded as well. But he's saying the priority is this inward, quiet, and gentle spirit. What he's saying is what will win your husbands, whether they're saved or not, to the things of God is the hidden person of your soul. Again, what he needs most from you is your holiness, not just your prettiness. Peter is saying this, to put it in other terms, pay more attention to the inner soul. Pay more attention to the inner man. 
Again, he isn't saying just let your body go. That's ridiculous. Take care of your body. Adorn it. Steward it. But our culture idolizes the body. I think we learned that over this past year. We're to prioritize the soul, but not to the neglect of the body. Now, he defines what this looks like. He says a gentle spirit. Let's work quickly through these. Gentleness or meekness. Here's what he means. Again, this is applicable to everyone in this room, not just wives, but he's speaking to wives at this moment. It means not insistent on one's own rights or not pushy, not selfishly assertive, not demanding one's own way. This includes quiet or emotional manipulation as well, I might add. A gentle spirit. Listen, this is not a matter of personality. Listen, this is going to be expressed differently with different personalities. But if your personality has a tendency to run towards being pushy and self-assertive or demanding, then your personality needs to be put in check. What he's saying is don't be a... He's not saying that you don't ever get to voice opinions. Or he's saying don't be a demanding jerk about it. Pretty simple. And he's saying on a positive way, be sacrificial. Just like our Savior. Remember, ladies, Jesus was the gentlest of all people. Even amidst his times of saying stern things. But he was always sacrificial, never looking to serve his own interests. He was never idolizing his preferences. He always entrusted his rights to his Father. Always. A gentle spirit. Now he's, Next he says a quiet spirit. Now here's the deal. In this context, I don't think quiet spirit means she never speaks. Right? Or you just turn the volume down, right? That's not what, that's not what he's referring to here. I'm going to use a big term and I'm going to define it for us. Here's what he means. A quiet spirit, meaning she's not tempestuous, all right? Now let me define that word for us. I had to look it up myself. Tempestuous. She's not, so this quiet spirit, meaning she's not characterized by strong and turbulent or conflicting emotions. Think of it like this. Think of it like this. When you say the storm was quieted, what do you think of? What's the picture that that promotes? We don't think, well, the storm raged on, but just someone turned down the volume, like putting in earplugs, right? You don't think of that. We think if the storm has been quieted, you think the storm has settled. And the volume has gone down, but the storm has settled. Here's what it means. It means an inner emotional peace, a tranquility, a restfulness to her soul. There's a calmness and a steadiness to her soul. Right? This is how we're to live in the midst of uncertainty. I mean, this is a calling for all of us. Do you want to know what takes great strength? Like in our culture, we think of power and having authority. Listen, it takes great strength to rely on the Lord in such a way that you have inner trust on the Lord such that no matter the circumstances, we have a gentle and quiet, calm and peaceful spirit about you. That takes strength. It takes work. It takes... Listen, I've seen your husbands. I know. I haven't seen them to the extent you have, thankfully. But I know what my wife has to work with. Man, she got to spend hours a week with the Lord to have a quiet and inner tranquility about her in the midst of having to deal with me. Listen, Jesus was the strongest man who ever lived, and yet he was adorned with a gentle and quiet spirit. Again, watch him in the midst of circumstances. The next thing here, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is incorruptible and precious. 
incorruptible and precious. This is something that will not perish. It will not fade away. It can't be taken away no matter the circumstances. There's an eternal investment or eternal investment here. It's kingdom work, ladies. I also want to point out to you and help you remember that only the Lord can see with perfect vision the gentle and quiet spirit inside you. Your husband will never appreciate it as he should. He will never know the depths of it like God does. God can see the beauty in your soul like no other person can. And he says here, it is beautiful to him. It's exceedingly precious to him. It's of great value to the Lord. Men, let me say to us briefly here, are we leading the women around us to believe this is true? Men, do you fight to make room for your wife to tend to her inner soul, to her soul, to her inner man? Do you fight for that? Meaning, do you encourage her to be a part of things like DNA or doxer? Do you make space for her to read her Bible, pray, journal every single day? Or is your selfishness so overbearing into her life that it squashes this? Men, do you praise her for evidences of a quiet and gentle spirit as defined by this passage, not your preferences? Lastly, men, are we praising these things in our daughters? Last main thought for this morning is this. Submission is marked by hope, not fear. Submission is marked by hope, not fear. Verse 5 through 6. And for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And, and you are her children. Uh, by the way, she wasn't calling him Jesus there, just for the record. Uh, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. So he names, at this point, he names Sarah specifically, but he would have had in his mind ladies like Ruth, Esther, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And here's what he says. They adorned themselves by submitting to their own husbands. It's the second time he uses that phrase in this passage. Let me, let me put it in other words for us. This idea of submission to their own husbands is a robe of beauty that they put on themselves. It isn't something that should leave a bad taste in our mouths, but rather something to delight in. Submission is something that will bring the Christian wife great joy. Just as all of us who are followers of Jesus, as we submit to the Lord, it brings great joy and delight to our lives. It's something that the wife puts on and she looks beautiful, it says here. Now to all those who are not wives, single women, men, husbands, we get to look at this. Like we get to see this picture. This beautiful picture. When, when I look at the way my wife follows and submits to me, I have to be careful because a lot of times I walk away feeling very guilty in my poor following of Jesus and my poor leading of her. But I get to see that picture. And I get to live with that picture. Now how? How does this happen? Where do we look? I love how Peter drops it right here in this passage for us. He says this, by hoping in God. Your hope in the Lord will birth joyful submission to your husband. 
indeed, all of us can submit ourselves to authority over us when our greatest hope is in the Lord and not in our own hands. See, that's really where this problem comes down to. This world is a scary place. Can I get an amen? It's a scary place. We have governments that are evil. We have employers that are selfish. We have parents that fail. We have husbands and leaders that will never get it right completely. And that is terrifying. Especially when it comes to the idea of submitting ourselves to their authority. Think back to Adam and Eve. What Satan do? He cast doubt on God's authority. Maybe God didn't get this one right. And so they were scared. And instead of continuing to hope in God, they, they hoped in their own hands. Another example, Jesus, in the midst of the scariest moments of his life, the cross, the shame he was about to endure, the guilt about to be put on his back, the wrath that he was about to absorb, but he did not fear. Why? Because he hoped in God. He knew his father would raise him from the dead. He knew his father would exalt him to his right hand. And with such amazing faith, Jesus walked in submission to his Father all the way to the cross. Now listen, that's not a call saying wives walk in physical abuse or emotional damaging abuse. That's, that's That's not the equation here. But you see, the, Jesus was able to go through such uncertain circumstances with a settled and peaceful heart, with pure conduct. Sure, it was hard, but he had peace. Why? Because his peace was in the Father, not in his circumstances, not in the failures of Pilate or the high priest or his own people. His hope wasn't in those things. His hope was in his Father. Instead, he gave up all these things for God's glory to be, to be displayed in his submission as he walked and executed the plan of powerfully rescuing his bride. Oh, church especially you wives. New birth in Christ leads us to new passions and conduct. Even within marriage. And for all of us, let's turn our eyes to Jesus, hope in God. That will birth the lovely picture of submission that you, particularly you wives, have this unique opportunity to display. Listen, the glory of God shown in your submission as you follow Jesus can be and will be the delight of your soul and will shine for the rest of us to see and behold and to help us see and behold our Savior who walked submissively to his Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to preach your word. Father, the chance for us to think about as a, as a holy nation, as a royal priesthood, how do we walk? Listen, he says that even wives, I mean, the implication here, that even wives who are submitting to their husbands, that they're a holy nation. And they're a royal priesthood. They're a people after God's own heart. They're a people who have received mercy. Just as we all who have been rescued by the grace of our Redeemer. But Father, you've given us unique and distinct roles, ways to function together as husbands and wives. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to that.
Help us to hope in you. Not hope in our world's ideas of how the husband-wife relationship should function. Help us not to hope in our past hurts and circumstances or fears of things coming in the future that we think might come or fears that we're experiencing right now. Father, help us not to hope in those things, but to hope in God. To hope in God. Father, I ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.